God is strong. Forever God is with us. Forever, forever, forever God is faithful. Forever God is strong. Forever God is with us. Forever, forever, forever. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because he's given Jesus Christ his Son. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks to the Holy One. Give thanks because he's given Jesus Christ his Son. And now let the weak say, I am strong. Let the poor say, I am rich because of what the Lord has done for us. Give thanks. Give thanks. Give thanks. In his time, in his time, he makes all things beautiful in his time. Lord, please show me every day as you're teaching me your way that you do just what you say in your time, in your time, in your time. You make all things beautiful in your time. Lord, my life to you I bring. May each song I have to sing be to you a lovely thing in your time. You may be seated. And Adam, if you wouldn't mind coming up for the offertory prayer, I'll do the information about the, the song first and turn it over to you. And of course, since he is here now, I'll introduce to those who have not seen him before, Adam King, our guest preacher for today. The Lord's my shepherd, I shall not want, is obviously the 23rd Psalm set to music, but it's been reworded a little bit to fit the tune. That tune is from a Scottish Psalter written in 1650 by William Whittingham and others. The melody was written by Jesse S. Irvine in 1871 and arranged by David Grant in 1872. Let us pray.
Lord, when we consider the vastness of this world and the perishing souls in it, we often feel like your disciples in front of the crowd. We have these fish, we have this bread, Lord, but what are these among so many? And yet we are thankful that you take the gifts that your people offer in faith and use them for your glory by your power and in your wisdom. So we pray that as we give to you today, that you will use these gifts powerless in themselves to uphold your church, to be used for the sustenance of the ministry, for the expansion of your word and kingdom, and the glory of your name, we ask through Jesus Christ. The Lord's my shepherd, I'll not want. He makes me down to lie. In pastures green he leadeth me, the quiet waters by. My soul he doth restore again, and me to walk doth make. Within the paths of righteousness, in for his own name's sake. Yea, though I walk through death's dark vale, yet will I fear no ill. For thou art with me, and thy rod and staff me comfort still. My table thou hast furnished in presence of my foes. My head thou dost with oil anoint, and my cup overflows. Goodness and mercy all my life shall surely follow me. And in God's house forevermore my dwelling place shall be. Uh, there'll be no children's Sunday school today, and I will turn everything over to Adam now for the prayer and prayer sermon. Before we come to the preaching of God's word this morning, let us come to God himself in prayer. O Lord, truly you are great and glorious, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in all your attributes and perfections, before whom the angels are not pure in thy sight. What are we, Lord, 
but dust and ashes. More than that, polluted in our own sin. Through our father Adam, and through the many that we have committed day by day against thee. O Lord, have mercy upon us. How we are grateful that in compassion you have announced the promise of the gospel to all who will believe, to be justified, to be sanctified, and at length, O Lord, to enter into glory with our precious Savior forever. We adore you. We acknowledge you to be the ever-living, all-gracious God that you reveal yourself to be. How we thank you that you have given us the word of God, that we might know you, that we might have communion and fellowship with you. Lord, draw near to us, we pray. We know, O Lord, that in your church there are many who suffer, many who are experiencing grief even this day and loss, mourning. Be the God of all comfort to them, we pray. To each of us, Lord, as we face the difficulties of this life, we pray that you will strengthen us and give us endurance to persevere one day closer until we reach home. We pray for the struggle against sin, Satan, and the world that we all also experience. Give us victory. When we fall, raise us up again, that we might grow in holiness and shine as lights in this dark world, that men may see our good deeds and glorify not us, but our Father in heaven. Now, O Lord, as your word is proclaimed in the hearing of all these people, convict those who are secure, who are yet dead, awaken them. Stir up and comfort and build up your people and bring home the word by the power of your spirit. For we are weak, O Lord, we are but vessels of clay. Your spirit gives life. We ask all these things through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The sermon today will come from Job, chapter 15. Welcome to turn there if you're so inclined. The sermon will come from verse 11 specifically, but for some context, I'll be reading verses 1 to 13. This is part of the second speech of Eliphaz, who was the first of Job's three friends. In the flow of the book of Job, after the terrible things that happened to Job happened to him, and the friends come to comfort him, they sit with him for seven days, and Job breaks the silence, and he complains out of his agony and out of his grief. And then each of the three friends takes turns trying to bring what they think the, the Word of God is to bear on his problems. But of course,
course, they say things that are wrong, and Job resists. And so after that cycle has made its way all the way through once, they start over a second time. And this is the first of that second cycle, the speech of Eliphaz the Temanite. So chapter 15, verses 1 to 13. Then answered Eliphaz the Temanite and said, Should a wise man utter vain knowledge and fill his belly with the east wind? Should he reason with unprofitable talk or with speeches wherewith he can do no good? Yea, thou castest off fear and restrainest prayer before God. For thy mouth uttereth thine iniquity, and thou choosest the tongue of the crafty. Thine own mouth condemneth thee, and not I. Thine own lips testify against thee. Art thou the first man that was born? Or wast thou made before the hills? Hast thou heard the secret of God? And dost thou restrain wisdom to thyself? What knowest thou that we know not? And what understandest thou which is not in us? With us are both the gray-headed and very aged men, much elder than thy father. Are the consolations of God small with thee? Is there any secret thing with thee? Why doth thine heart carry thee away? And what do thy eyes wink at? That thou turnest thy spirit against God, and lettest such words go out of thy mouth. For the sermon, we'll be looking particularly at that 11th verse. Are the consolations of God small with thee? Is there any secret thing with thee? Sometimes a well-put question can make us pause and consider things in a different light. We've experienced this, right? We can be told things over and over again until somebody's blue in the face. But really what makes us sit up and reevaluate things is being put a question to us that makes us have to answer, to think through the reasons for ourselves, as if we were going to have to explain it. And that can change everything. God knows this. And so the Bible has many different ways of communicating truth. There are some places in the Bible that assert truth, line upon line, precept upon precept. But you know just as well as I do that we are so slow to apply the truth, even the truth that we know, especially at those times when it really counts, aren't we? So this morning, this question is designed to make us wrestle with what is going on in our own hearts. So you have some work to do. Don't just sit here and listen to me talk about this. You need to take the question and be asking it to yourself as well. To do the work of wrestling it with it in your own heart. To try to give a real answer to it, not as if it were a rhetorical question, but as a question you must give account to, to God himself, who knows your hearts and who can see everything in them. 
the context here is important. In the book of Job, the devil is attempting to show that the gospel is a sham. Religion, according to the devil, is essentially self-serving. You do stuff because God gives you stuff and you want the stuff. Unfortunately, that really is what religion is for far too many people today, even professing Christians. But the devil thinks this way in the book of Job. Back in the Garden of Eden, he had once tempted Adam and Eve, and he had caused them, led them to fall into sin. God had promised to restore and save a people. But now the devil is suggesting that all he has to do to undo that, to ruin the gospel, just like he tried to ruin the covenant in the Garden of Eden, is make things hard, make things painful. Because if religion really is just about doing certain things for God so that he makes our life comfortable, and our life isn't comfortable anymore, it completely undoes the whole foundation of what religion is all about. And so the question that the devil is, is putting to God, essentially, in the book of Job is, is the gospel real? Is there something vital and different about what God says is the gospel, the covenant of grace, that cannot be defeated just because his people suffer. And so, Job suffers a lot. He becomes a test case, an object lesson, for God to demonstrate the reality of the gospel amidst suffering. And Job suffers a lot, doesn't he? He loses his lifestyle, his children, his health, his friends come to comfort him. They sit quietly with him at first, but then Job starts speaking, and he speaks too strongly. He starts complaining sinfully. But the friends then become tools of the devil to try to persuade Job to admit that he's actually been a hypocrite all along. Now, that's how they're used. But that's not what they're self-consciously trying to do in their own minds. From the perspective of the friends, they're trying to bring the truth of God's word to bear on Job's situation. From their perspective, and they're wrong here, people don't just suffer unless they have some great sin in their life. Job suffers. Therefore, Job must have some great sin. And so they set out to convert a sinner from the error of his way and to save a soul from death and hide a multitude of sins. They tell Job, sinners will be judged like this. But if you repent, God is merciful. God will forgive you. The Lord will bless you again. So far as that latter part goes, that is true. But Job knows it isn't quite that simplistic. And although he has no problem admitting that he is a sinner, he vehemently denies that he's a hypocrite. 
Sometimes in this book, he does that a little too strongly. Now his friend Eliphaz, misunderstanding Job's reason for rejecting his counsel, is asking him to reflect upon his heart. You want to see the reality of what's in your heart? Answer Eliphaz's questions. Do wise people just vent their spleens? Do godly people rant? Or do they pray in trouble? Do you think you know everything? Or will you actually be taught by the counsel and the experience of the saints who have suffered before you? And that brings us to this question. Are the consolations of God small with thee? Is there any secret thing with thee? It's as if he were saying, Job, if you were really righteous like you claim to be, you wouldn't rage so much in your suffering because you would lay hold of the comfort that God gives. Or do you think that you have some secret answer that nobody else knows about? How is that working out for you, Job? And as you know, part of the drama of the book of Job is that the friends totally misunderstand and misrepresent Job himself as a man. It's part of the devil's temptation. But if their application didn't apply to Job, the truth is still truth. And it is worth asking ourselves, does this apply to me? Here is one way that we can see if we were actually hypocrites in our religion. If we're a sham as a professor. Even if we're true believers, here is a question to test whether we are behaving in godly ways in our suffering. Or if we're acting in unbelieving ways in our suffering. And that's awfully important to know, isn't it? So to help us answer this question for ourselves, we'll consider this morning, first of all, what are these consolations of God? Secondly, what does it mean for them to be small with us? Thirdly, is there some secret thing with us? Well, first of all, then, what are these consolations of God that we should be thinking about? Simply put, they are the comforts that God gives, especially in times of suffering. And notice how Eliphaz takes for granted in this question that there are such consolations. He can do that because he knows something about who God is. The Bible calls God the God of all comfort who comforteth us in all our tribulation. 2 Corinthians 1, 3, and 4. Isn't that amazing? That God wants us to know him in that way. That's his identity. That's how he reveals himself to his people. The God of all comfort. How meaningful that is 
when we consider who we are. We're like those in Psalm 107. Fools for their sin and their offense do sore affliction bear. All kinds of meat their soul abhors. They to death's gates draw near. As a race, we brought suffering on ourselves, foolishly, through sin. But who is God? God is the one of whom it is said, in grief they cry to God. He saves them from their miseries. He sends his word, them heals and them from their destruction frees. Not only does God do things like this, especially in the gospel, he delights to reveal himself as the God who comforts. He comforts even on the problems that his people have brought on themselves. Do you know him in that way? And the saints can actually speak that way because God can be known in that way. Not in theory, but by experience. That same passage that said that God is the God of all comforts also says that he, comfort, that, uh, he comforts us in our tribulations that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble, by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. In other words, it's experienced. It's felt. Paul, for example, knew it personally. He was living proof. He had tasted the comforts of God and was able to minister them to others. Presumably, Eliphaz here himself knew something, not just in theory, but experience of these comforts of God. I stand before you today as a sinner, but a real Christian, and I can tell you from experience myself on the authority of the Word of God. This isn't just a theory. It's not just something you read about in a book. It's something as a Christian you can actually know for yourself. It's real. And if Paul and Eliphaz and I and countless others have known it by experience, why not you? The Lord holds his comforts out to you and as to as, to as many as will receive them by faith. The fact that they are actually known and experienced and not just theoretical, is a huge part, all by itself, of the consolations of God. Because what is a comfort, after all, that you just think about in your head versus actually experiencing your life? Hopefully you think, this sounds great. I want this. What are these comforts of God? First and foremost, the gospel itself. This is a truth found in Eliphaz's first speech in chapter 5. We have brought ourselves into the greatest misery of all. Sin, guilt, alienation from God, 
That's really the most suffering that we experience, the greatest type of suffering. And yet God is gracious. He sent his son to suffer the punishment sinners deserve so that sinners could be accepted by him. Don't persist in sin. And on top of that, you don't have to dig yourself out of the problem that you created. Trust in Jesus Christ. You will be saved. You will be forgiven. You will be put into a position of peace with God, both objectively and subjectively. What comfort is it for a condemned man knowing that he need not die, but there is a pardon for him, for the receiving. What more elating reality to know that we are not dealt with as our sins deserve. Our sins and faults of youth, the Lord does forget. He casts them behind his back. He sinks them in the depths of the sea. And as bad and as hopeless as you have perhaps made your life, maybe for many decades, with a fearful eternity staring you in the face, there is hope. Trust in Christ. Repent of your sins. He will forgive you. That should be comforting. Should be comforting if you've never experienced it before and now for the first time can come to Christ. And it should be comforting to all of you who have come to Christ and live on him day by day because that is the foundation. But how many consolations of God are there besides this? These are all the blessings that flow out of the gospel. And how many are they? Well, there are as many as all the promises of God in all of the Bible. Obviously, we can't go through all of them this morning. But let's think of just a few. God tells us he is the God that binds up the brokenhearted. Psalm 147. Even in just human relationships, we know how wonderful it is to have the sympathy of friends when we're grieving, right? It's healing to us. But people can only do so much, as anybody who's ever tried to comfort somebody else can attest. But what can God do to heal our grief? He who made the heart, does he not know how to heal it and make it whole? Doctors can put on bandages and give medicines. They can even do heart surgeries. But how effective is the healing of this physician who has made not only our bodies but our souls as well? Think of how many times Jesus looked out on the crowds on the ravages that sin had caused. Leprosy, blindness, 
possession, death. And what do we read about Jesus? He was moved with compassion and healed them. Not only this, not only is he the one who can heal the broken heart, Eliphaz has previously told Job, he is also the one who breaks the heart so that he can heal it even better. Now, at first, that doesn't sound so comforting, does it? But in reality, it is. Just like a physician may have to break a bone to reset it so that it can heal strong and correct, God chastens, disciplines, for the purpose of healing us stronger. So Eliphaz tells Job, happy is the man whom God corrected. Notice here, happiness does not always mean lack of pain. Sometimes it involves it. But there is happiness that the believer can know, even in correction itself. Knowing that what God is doing is not causing pain for the sake of pain, but God is doing this for the sake of bringing about the peaceable fruit of righteousness. Suffering of the Christian is not purposeless. There's a reason. And it's for our good. What a consolation that is, or could be to us. It's like what Peter said. Though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaviness. Need to be, but it is for an infinite and eternal good. No suffering happens to you, Christian, but what is needful, necessary for you. Are you comforted by that? No suffering that we experience is a real evil to us as Christian. Eliphaz had said, He shall deliver thee in six troubles, yea, in seven there shall no evil touch thee. And just as God has promised to withhold no good thing from his people, he will allow no evil thing, no truly evil thing, to ultimately harm us. Eliphaz had previously reminded Job of the truth that Job would be in league with the stones of the field and the beasts of the field shall be at peace with him. What is this but to say that everything is under Christ's power? And that means everything is ruled and used, even the seemingly harmful things, on behalf of the believer. And it isn't just that good things come out of bad things. It's that all things, all things, are working for good. Every stone in the way in the field, every dangerous beast, every suffering and disease and calamity that we experience, these are not ultimately our enemies, even the enemies themselves, like death, which is called an enemy, is a tool in the Redeemer's hand that is being used for the good of his people. 
If even the enemies are made subservient to you as a Christian, what is there that can harm you? Eliphaz has talked with Job in chapter 5, verse 24, about visiting his habitation and not sinning. You know, we don't often think about that as a comfort and a consolation, but we should. The idea of not sinning, of sanctification. Do you feel this? Have you been delivered from the guilt of sin? And you're also being conformed to Christ. Yes, in this life, we still do sin. And when the Christian does, it's agonizing. Or at least it should be. To the point where the Christian with Paul can cry out, who will deliver me from the body of this death? Christ does. At last, but even increasingly in this life. And our suffering is one of the ways that he's doing that right now. David sang, It hath been very good for me that I afflicted was, that I might well instructed be and learn thy holy laws. Christian, it doesn't feel like it sometimes, but you are growing in holiness. Isn't that an actual comfort to you? I mean, just think, if you're trying to learn some kind of subject, foreign language or something, the more you can see your progress, the more you can speak in it, you're encouraged to keep going. You're bolstered up by the fact that this is actually working. There's something going on here. What about your sanctification? Is there not a comfort to see God's work, his hand in your life, as sin is increasingly being put under and you are growing more like your Savior? And what are the consolations of God as they relate to the Christian facing even death itself? The Bible tells us that for the believer, the sting of death has been taken away. The Bible tells us death is gain for the Christian. To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. And after that, the resurrection. Do you believe it? When we lose our loved ones in this world, their gain is our loss. And there is a real grief, a real pain, a real suffering that takes place there. Not for them, but for us. But if they are Christians, and we are, we will be reunited to them in the resurrection, with resurrection bodies. Jesus comes. That is a truth of which the Apostle Paul tells us to comfort one another with these words. Besides the promises of God, 
which are so many more than even just the few I've put out there this morning, we have the presence of God experientially. Christian, it is in suffering that we know the reality of this most clearly. We have a God of all comfort. We have a Savior who is touched with the feeling of our infirmity as a sympathetic high priest. He has given us the Holy Spirit to be with us as the Comforter. And those are real things that you can know. You can have fellowship, interaction, communion with that God. There is a real peace that passeth understanding that comes from him. It is possible to have joy in affliction. We know and we feel more of the love of Christ, which passeth knowledge. And where words fail us, experience teaches us. But you know where you find that the most? In affliction. Just like the best wines are kept in the cellar, so God reserves his sweetest, richest, choicest blessings and comforts for his saints suffering in affliction. Lastly, on this topic, let us think of the comforts of God as mediated or experienced in part through his people. Eliphaz here is not talking to Job in the abstract, but as a friend. A friend who is trying, although as we see later he fails in some respects, but is trying to bring the word of God to bear in Job's life. Paul talks this way about his own experience. Nevertheless, God that comforteth those that are cast down comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not by his coming only, but by the consolation wherewith he was comforted in you, when he told us your earnest desire, your mourning, your fervent mind toward me, so that I rejoiced the more. God's comforts are given and experienced to all of his people and just like our situations are different, our experiences of them are different too. We are comforted with, by God, and we have the opportunity to mediate, to share that with other Christians. And God uses that to comfort them in turn as well. If you've ever experienced it, you know it's true. And it is something profoundly different from that empty, superficial, worldly socializing that pretends to be Christian fellowship today, but is ultimately empty of the Lord. What I'm talking about is Christian fellowship of the order that is earnest in shared prayer with each other, in sharing suffering and in sharing joy in sharing the word of God back and forth to each other as it pertains to our experience. If you've known that as a Christian, 
There is no human relationship that compares to it. When Jesus talks in the gospel about those who embrace the gospel, they may lose family members for the sake of the gospel, but they'll receive more even in this world now, let alone the world to come. This is the kind of thing he's talking about. He's talking about that kind of Christian fellowship in which it's not just that we're comforting each other, but we're the tools in the hands of God to minister God's comfort to one another. That's why it's so important for us to pursue that kind of fellowship amongst each other as Christians. But this brings us then to the next point. These are exceedingly precious comforts. But what do they mean to you? Not in theory, but at the point when your life hurts the most, like Job's was here. When your loved ones die, when your dreams are dashed, and you're all alone, when it comes time for you to die yourself, how much do these things make an actual difference in your life practically? Or are they small, of little comfort to you? For some of you, perhaps, you don't even have to get to the point of being crushed to think that they're small. They're insignificant to you now. You hear me talk about these things, and they seem like they just kind of wash over you, like there's nothing to this. You're bored. You think, yeah, yeah, I've heard that. It seems to be of little practical meaning compared to the things that bring you real comfort in this life, the things that you enjoy, the things that your thoughts are wandering to right now while I'm speaking. Is it so with you? Have you so little relish for these comforts of God? They don't move you? It's worth asking the question, am I really a Christian at all? It doesn't matter what you say you are. That's Eliphaz's point. Claim to be what you will, but the things that console the heart most, those are the things that show what you really are. Search yourself, because the day of testing will eventually show you for what you are. You can't escape it. Just as Adam and Eve esteemed Eden less than being wise as gods themselves, and so lost paradise. And Esau esteemed his birthright less than a pot of lentils, and so lost it. If you think these comforts of God are small now, smaller than the things you want in this world, you will lose them and all true comfort forever. Think of the rich man in hell. He could not get so much as a single drop of water to ease his tormented, burning tongue. And if that is so, how you will long for one of the days of the Son of Man. And tragically, you'll never see it again. 
know what? Sometimes even as Christians too, in fact, too many times as Christians, the reality is that we suffer more than we need to, and we sin for this very reason. Because although we don't despise the comforts of God altogether, no Christian can, we don't consider them as big, as the major things, as the main things. They're there, they're, they're part of our lives, but they're little parts. They're little in our esteem. The sad reality is if they're little in our esteem as Christians, they're also going to be little in their effect in our lives as Christians too. If we ask ourselves the question honestly, there are many times as Christians when the consolations of God do seem small, do seem like little comfort to us. Why is this? Consider just a few reasons. One, I think, is that we don't really know much about the comforts of God because we don't know what they are. If the promises are found all throughout the Bible, you know what you need to do? Read it. Lots of it. How much comfort do you need? A chapter's worth. Five to ten minutes a day worth of comfort. That'll do it for you. How much do you need from the Lord? Find it where he has given it to you. In the word of God. Think of an analogy, if I can't persuade you this way, right? You're going through some hard sickness, or you've just lost a loved one, and your friends attempt to be comforters to you by doing, among other things, sending you a sympathy card in the mail. And you go to the mailbox, and you see that letter, and you think, oh, isn't that nice that someone so thought of me? And you take it inside throw it down on your dining room table, and never open it. Now, you might find a little comfort in the fact that somebody thought about you, but if you don't open it and read it, you won't know what the person said. <laughs> the, the expressions of the heart won't be ministered to you through what they wrote. How much comfort will it really give? Is it not so with the Bible? The Bible itself says, for whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning that we through patience and comforts of the scriptures might have hope. If you don't know what the comforts of God are, is it not because they are considered small by you, at least practically? Well, isn't any wonder then that we have so little comfort to draw on when the time comes? So little to fall back on, and we end up complaining and sinning more than we might otherwise do. Another reason that the consolations of God seem small to us is because not just that we're ignorant of them, but we make little use of them. You know, silly as it might sound, 
We too often have the idea as Christians that things just happen magically, mysteriously, automatically, without any involvement of our minds and souls in the process. That's not how the Christian life works. Not only must we know the promises, we must believe them. We must use them. If a human friend tells you, hey, you know, I know you're going through a hard time. If you need anything, call me. I'll be there for you. And you never call that person? Guess what happens? We know, right? And yet how often has God told us in the word, call upon him in trouble? Do you? He has told us to believe, to act in reliance on his promises. The comforts of God come to us and are strengthened in that way. The more we interact with the human comforter, the more comfort that person can be. And the more we interact with God, the more we will know God's comfort. We seem to act as Christians sometimes like we don't really believe God is personal. And much to our own hurt. We find comfort in God by having fellowship with God. We need more of him. We believe he is the God of comfort. Are we drawing near to him? We believe that Christ is a sympathetic high priest. Are we casting our cares upon him? We believe that the Holy Spirit is the comforter. Well, then why don't we seek out those comforts from him? And isn't one last reason why the consolations of God are often so small to us? Because we are still so worldly. The things of God don't affect us as much because we're wanting and what we want and what we seek is something different than God's priorities. We're not comforted by the presence of God because what we really want is something in this world like ease more than God. We're not comforted by God's blessing us with holiness and help in afflictions because we don't value holiness and sanctification more than we value our earthly ease. We don't find comfort in the face of death because we'd rather prolong our life forever in this world rather than think that our real home is heaven. And death is gain because it's a passageway there. What do you really want? Is your lack of comfort in the things of God's promises actually show that the way that we want to be comforted is different than the way God offers to comfort his people? Is it any wonder what he actually gives us will seem small, will seem little good to us because God's comforts are aimed at different things than the things that our hearts still want. 
if our goals don't match God's goals. His promises and his gifts are perfectly suited to meet the needs that he tells us to believe that we have and the things that he tells us to want and to desire and to crave. But if our priorities and desires are different from what God tells us they should be, of course we're going to find that his comforts are small comforts to us. Because God's comforts were never designed to soothe our worldly, sinful cravings for comfort. It won't work. But lastly, one practical reason they are often small with us is our rejection of sound preaching. Eliphaz is not asking Job in a vacuum. The consolations of God that he's talking about are specifically the ones that he and the friends have been mentioning to Job in their speeches. And when they see that Job doesn't be, seem to be accepting what they're saying, uh, they think that he's rejecting not them in the areas that they were wrong about, but they think that he's rejecting God and his comforts himself. But this is application for us. God's comforts are often given chiefly, powerfully, in the sound preaching of his word. It's one of the chief ways. So then let me ask you, do you seek it out? When you're suffering, do you want to stay home from church? Or do you want to be here? When you're hurting the most, are you driven to hear more about God and his comforts? Or does it seem oppressive and hard and something you'd rather leave aside? Want the comforts of God? Seek them where they may be found. The preaching of the word of God when done biblically and faithfully are the comforts of God to you, Christian. Oh, seek it. All of this brings us to the last half of the question more briefly. Is there any secret thing that the Eliphaz's meaning might be? If God's comforts seem insignificant with you, perhaps there is some hidden secret sin or sinful perspectives in your life. Another way of saying what we've said already, that suffering brings out what we really are. And so it's always valuable to ask ourselves, is there some sort of hidden sin, hidden sinful perspectives in my way of thinking that prevent me from benefiting from the comforts of God? But even more than that, I think Eliphaz is asking Job, if God's comforts are small with you, is it because you have something better? Is there something in you sufficient for yourself Ask yourself, unbelievers, you think that you do. And it's so sad. You think that the present, your pleasures, your reputations, your money, the things that you give your bodies mind and ease with now, even good gifts, 
like food and drink and family and spouses and children and grandchildren. These are the secrets to happiness. But this world and everything in it is passing away. How quickly all these things fail. We find comfort in good food, get sick for a while. You'll lose your appetite. Do you find comfort in your resources and goods and money in this world? It can't stop death from happening. Eventually, your games and recreations and diversions you won't be able to participate in anymore. And even in old age, on our deathbeds, as much as many of us have this dream of how great it would be to be surrounded by loving family as we pass into eternity. And I'm not knocking that. There is something precious about that. Not a one of those people is going to be crossing that threshold with you. You go through death hand in hand with Jesus or you go through it alone. Have you ever noticed that one of the sins of old age is bitterness? Have you ever wondered why? One of the reasons is because those comforts that used to make up so much of life begin to fail. They're torn from us the closer and closer we get to death. But even if you enjoy them all your life long, what comfort will your pleasures in this world be in hell? Think about it. You've been in hell for a year. A year of endless torment. Do you really think you're going to look back in hell and think, well, at least I got to see that movie. I'm really glad I enjoyed that game of golf. <laughs> I sure enjoyed the good memories I had back then with my family. All of those things, even the good things, will not bring you comfort as you stare face to face with an eternity of never-ending suffering and no hope that it will ever be different for one moment. Does that seem extreme? Does that seem like scare tactics? That's the reality that God says awaits the unbeliever. Just think honestly for a moment. If this is terrifying to you, it should be. Remember what Abraham said to the rich man in hell. Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime received thy good things, and Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted, and thou art tormented. Even in this life, we see the stupidity of pursuing the short-term pleasure to the neglect of the long. What do you really have? What secret thing is with you that men and women haven't tried for thousands of years? When it has never worked for anyone else, why will it be different with you? Will you make God a liar? in your single case. But it doesn't have to be this way. Now is the day of grace. Repent of your sins. 
find forgiveness in Christ. And you will find satisfaction in him. And oh, Christian, why do we copy such terrible examples? We may not go the same lengths, but aren't we suckered into the same ways of bad thinking? But the Bible tells us that even the reproaches of Christ are greater riches than all the pleasures of sin for a season. What then are the comforts of Christ? Deep down, you know this, don't you? As a Christian, one hour of communion, one real face-to-face time of fellowship with Jesus in this life, is worth whatever suffering it takes to produce that. And if you're a Christian, you know that to some experience, to some degree. Those spiritual comforts given by God are the sweetest, dearest things you have ever known. As a Christian, you will believe better is the fiery furnace for me if the Son of God is in it, than anything else besides. Pursue him more, because the more you esteem those kinds of comforts, which you can have in this world, the more he will give them to you. And then, after that, Oh, after all the evil things that you have experienced in this life have been transformed into the suburbs of heaven here, what comfort will you know with the pleasures of God's right hand in his house above in ways you have never even dreamed of for eternity? it? Are the consolations of God really small with you? My friends, use this Sabbath day to give an honest answer to this question. And when you suffer, as you inevitably will, repeat it to yourself over and over again. Let us pray. Oh, Lord God, we do confess to our shame that the comforts, the overwhelming comforts in Christ have been little prized by us. Suffering doesn't make us seek them out more. It drives them away. Oh, Lord, we are foolish, but you are gracious. Send your comfort, O Lord, by converting the lost to know this for themselves. Send your comfort to your people that even as we feel the guilt and the sting of of our foolishness in these things, we might know that you are ready to forgive, that you are ready like the father in the parable of the prodigal son to run 
to your repentant children. And may we know more and more of that fellowship with Jesus Christ, which is better and sweeter and greater than anything the world can give us. May these things be so by your grace and the work of your Holy Spirit to all who hear today. In Jesus' name. Receive his blessing, my dear brothers and sisters, as we depart. Grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the communion of the Holy Ghost be with you all.